This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, awarded CanStar's most trusted energy providers nationally 2021 and 22. That's Red Energy. And Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world. Visit princewinestore.com.au. Say what you will about the relevance Queen Elizabeth II had in our lives. She symbolised something that we will never see again. And I think the feeling of loss for a world that is now gone and a world where she sort of pivoted from age to age, from decade to decade and, and still somehow remained relevant. Oh, it was really sad. But I do think Harry has to now rethink I'm the son of the king and I have responsibilities and I should not be writing tell-all memoirs. But he has a lot to lose because, as we know, King Charles III is now a very wealthy man. Caro, grumpy, your turn. Airlines. Mean, bastard airlines who, the minute a major event is announced, like an AFL preliminary final, they put up their prices. I was at the park the other day with Panda and somebody said, what's your dog's name, Amanda? (laughs) And I started laughing, which I thought was probably quite rude to Amanda's, but I've never heard of a dog called Amanda. Quite cute. <laughs> Don't shoot the messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Hi everybody, welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger, episode two hundred and thirty-five. A week after some momentous news came through from the UK overnight last Thursday, um, the death of Queen Elizabeth II, and all the preparation for her funeral has really dominated the week's news. We will, of course, be talking about this in the next little while. But fellow podster and royal watcher Caroline Wilson is with me. Caro, what an extraordinary seven days we've been going through. It is, Corrie. We all we knew it was coming. We knew that what was the, the code line, London Bridge has fallen. We knew that London Bridge was going to fall one day and we knew it was probably this year. In fact, we talked about it last week on the podcast when we discussed why Harry's book hadn't been released, why The Crown's latest series hasn't been released. But when it happened, it felt like such a massive shock. And the first 24 hours for me, I mean, say what you will about the relevance Queen Elizabeth II had in our lives. There is absolutely no doubt she symbolised something that we will never see again. And I think the feeling of loss for a world that is now gone and a world where she sort of pivoted from age to age, from decade to decade and, and still somehow remained relevant was just, um, oh, it was really sad. Was I think, very, I think it was sad. a shock too because we had seen her welcoming the new British Prime Minister Liz Truss only a couple of days before, even though we commented when we last recorded our podcast that she was not looking in great shape, but uh, it still was a terrible shock. Did we'll, she we'll, die of cancer? We don't know. No, no one is saying. There are some doctors who are saying a stroke or aneurysm, which could be the case, uh, or heart attack, or maybe they turned the morphine up. Who knows? I wonder whether we'll ever find out. But we'll talk more about the ramifications of her death, um, Charles and his future, and Britain and its future in the next little while. Caro, we've got lots to discuss apart from the Queen. We are taking a bit of a royal theme with our uh, um um, you've got BSF. You've you, got. I have books. Yes, five books. And I've instructed you, have, you to give me your five favourite royal books. And I've books. instructed you to. I actually asked you nicely. <laughs> have you got five <laughs> great screens to, to do with royal family? I've restricted so, my screens to female rulers. 
Oh, that's well. It's hard to. It's hard to. I thought I've actually got an easier deal. I think than you because there have been so many screens. Oh no, of yes, brilliance. it is hard. And the king's speech was an unlucky misserouter because yeah. it was more about the king than his daughter. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. You also have a recipe, and of course, there is a. There are a couple of uh, important footy matches on this weekend, and because you are going up to Sydney to watch the Sydney Swans versus Collingwood Pies, Magpies, you're going to tell us uh, a few tips if you're in Sydney for 48 hours. What might one do? Carol, we've had some interesting feedback from our listeners, Alice in Frames, who many people will know and love her cooking. We talked about her cookbook last week. You're a big fan of her first cookbook, Impressive Veg. She got in contact with us, Carol. She said, so she pleased did. you're enjoying better cookbook already, Corey. Caro, I'll pop one in the post for you. Oh, that's good news. Still feeling the glow of learning. You've got In Praise of Veg on high rotation at your place. And she sends a little love heart with that. And Janice underscore Stanton, also on our Instagram account, Don't Shoot Pod, Instagram handle, if you want to send us any messages. Janice says, always a great listen. Love your friendship dynamic and the breadth of discussion topics. Thank you. Don't know about you, Caro, but I received half a dozen or more texts from friends and people we know saying, I hope you girls are going to discuss the royal family. Yes, we are. But before we do, I just want to acknowledge our sponsors, Red Energy, of course, and Prince Wine Store and Miles will be in later with some suggestions for what we should drink if we are indeed gathering together as family or friends to watch the royal funeral. So let's go on to the death of Queen Elizabeth II. She died September the 8th, age 96 at Balmoral Castle. She became Queen Caro February 6, 1952. She was born on April 21st, 1926 at 17 Brushen Street, which was the London home of the Earl and Countess of Strathmore, which were her maternal grandmothers, the, the grandparents, the parents of uh, the Queen Mother. And at that stage, of course, Queen Elizabeth was the third in line to the throne. All of that changed with the abdic- abdication of her uncle, Edward VIII, as charismatic and as much admired as he was. And bad egg that he turned out to be. In <laughs> fact, I, I'm, you're going to go on and I want to hear your lovely rap, but I thought... My favourite statements that came out, certainly from an Australian point of view, were Paul Keating's, which came out a day or two ago, which I just thought encapsulated what she meant to so many people, um, even though I think he was described as, my brother reminded me, the lizard, the lizard of Oz, Oz. When, when he had his arm One of around the great it. Fleet Street headlines. Great Fleet Street headline. <laughs> I thought Anthony Albanese has just even... For all the um, right-wingers in my midst, people have just been so impressed by the way he has dealt with this, the way he's handled it, by the tone he has taken, which is so correct. But um, one of my favourites pointed out by my Aunt Lil the other day was um, it was in one of the briefs in either The Age or The 50-50 in The Herald Sun, and it was a letter to the editor from Susie Holt. Three words, thank you, Wallace Simpson. (laughs) (laughs) Which just, it was such a great one line. Well, yes. And over the weekend, I was listening to a, a history podcast on the abdication period. And of course, we do forget, although that wonderful movie, The King's Speech, uh, reminded us of George VI, her father's extraordinary anxiety about public speaking. And it wasn't just because he had a stutter, he was painfully, terribly, terribly shy. When he first met Elizabeth, who then became the Queen Mother, 
Uh, Bo's lion. Bo's lion. He could barely talk to her at that country party. Uh, but she was calm and enthusiastic and encouraged him, and theirs was a true love affair, I believe. Um, the Queen herself has had, many would say, a charmed life. It's not bad having all of those palaces and all of that. Um, but it, it started in tragedy, of course, as all, all new reigns do, with the death of her parent. And Harold Nicholson, the very famous diplomat and politician, wrote in his diary at the time, she became queen while in a perch in a tree in Africa, watching the rhinoceros come down to the pool to drink. And as we remember, Cara, not that you and I were alive, but it's famous, of course, that she was in Africa at the time having a royal visit with her husband, the Duke of Edinburgh, and she had left a rather um, unhealthy father at home. Little did she know when she kissed him at the airport that day that she would never see him again, and, of course, came home dressed in black, and she was the new monarch. Yes, the only, what what did they say, the only woman to climb a tree, a princess, and climb back down a queen, because they were, of course, staying at treetops in Africa. Yeah, look, it's an extraordinary story. Um, when you listen to the early speeches, her, in, her initial declarations about what she intended to do, that beautiful reading, she clearly had no such issues with diction like her father. When you listen to that beautiful um, BBC children's service um, that she read. She did, yes, with Princess Margaret. When she was 14. Um, when, or to, really, it was, it was to all the evacuees that had been spread around the world and around Great Britain during the war. That was such a beautiful, beautiful reading. I mean, you listen to her then and it was, you know, the comparisons have been made to, um, you know, when she made that wonderful speech during um, the pandemic when she said, better days will return. I mean... Uh, there was something about that line, better days will return. It just resonated with oh, everyone and, oh. and filled everyone with so much hope. And she very rarely gave unscheduled speeches. Of course, another unscheduled um, comment was after the Meghan Harry interview with Oprah when she made one of the famous lines was, recollections may vary <laughs> after right. the um, sort of racism allegation. Like Princess, Prince William saying, we are not a racist family. You could hear you could hear the silence as those as those two comments were made. But hasn't it been beautiful watching her journey through Scotland? The well, ponies and, and the Cara, carts how and the she, people. She must have known, of course, that she was unwell and she was determined to get to Scotland for the annual summer holiday. She must have had an inkling that this is this was a possibility, clearly, because all of the plans were in place. Uh, but it was her most favourite place. She she loved Balmoral, as we know. So there was there was certainly something quite poignant in that. If it does become a museum, Corrie, we have to go and visit it. We'll walk there, Carol. That has to one be. One of our walks. So I just wondered, before we get on to the Queen's not only achievements, but some of her uh, her miscalculations, I suppose, or strategic errors, but let's talk about um, three, key, three or four key moments of the past week. I would have to say um, I was deeply touched um, – by Princess Anne's statement, which has come out yes. a few days after everyone else's, it was simple and it was beautiful, and it was a it was a daughter to a mother, and of course the Queen's four children holding vigil, even though um, the rather foul old Andrew was there. But to see Prince Charles or King Charles the Third, uh, the Princess Royal Anne, and the Princes Andrew and Edward stand around their mother's coffin to hold vigil in Edinburgh, which is an ancient old tradition that the children of a monarch do that. First time a woman's done it, which was um, which was terrific to see Anne. I hope you took a good look at Andrew because I think once Charles is fully ensconced, we won't be seeing much of him again. I'm sure the Queen's left oh, him a decent right. settlement 
and he'll be shuffled off to Buffalo. Well, he he and Fergie have been given the corgis, the two corgis that were alive. So, yes, so they'll have them that. to keep them company. But oh, and then I guess the third one for me, of course, was the Fab Four at the gates of Windsor. Um, maybe not so fabulous these days, but it was. Uh, it, it gave a lot of people a great deal of comfort, I think, to see Charles's two sons, who are close to so many people in their hearts, um, to see them together again. So, what about you? What were your highlights? Oh well, I, th- I think King Charles the Third um, doing the public investi- investiture, which mm. um, we've never seen before. It's never happened before. A sign of things to come. The, basically him walking the streets and glad-handing his new subjects and making a big statement, really, about which where he intends to go and the speech he made talking about his beloved Camilla and talking about both of his sons, not just one of them. I thought that was pretty incredible. Um, I thought the fact that, and this all must have been planned, you know, a long, long time ago, but his very, very rapid trip up to Northern Ireland and the dinner where, you know, where Sinn Féin members, it was so many different people were in attendance. I thought that was incredibly significant. I mean, he really seems to be starting as he means to go on. Despite writing the incorrect date and then becoming cross with himself and then spilling ink and making a bit... Looked looked a bit um, he was looked, yes he looked was, a bit uh, a bit spoiled child at that point a I bit thought. grumpy that was a, that was a poor moment that was that was a poor moment but I'm trying to be positive and think about the fact that this would be a very stressful time for a family who's just lost a, a mother who they've had you know for so long and I, I suppose the fact that um, both Charles and Anne were with her when she died I thought that was pretty extraordinary I mean I, I read about the fact that they wouldn't let Harry go in the plane with William and. You know, he had to go in a different route and ended up driving up with um, Andrew and Edward and all of that. But I, I thought the fact that her two eldest children were there was pretty lovely. And um, I really think the journey, the journey of her body and the, the glass coffin, you know, which has allowed everyone to sort of look at the coffin and, you know, the see The glass it. hearse, you mean. The glass yeah. hearse, I should say. Mm. And... Um, and some of the people, some of the Scottish people, before she was, of course, flown to London, um, that journey from Balmoral through Aberdeen down to Edinburgh was just the and the, the, the mile, the Royal Mile. Um, but the farmers and um, talking with Anna from the op shop just recently, you know, the ponies. Mm. And the, it, it was just, it was so beautiful. And, and, and I suppose the other one was remembering all of her trips to Australia and all the times she came here, you know, with um, uh, the Premier Steve Brax, with the Royal Children's Hospital, her last trip on a Melbourne tram in that beautiful bright pink outfit, um, the opening of the Opera House. I mean, you know, she came here a lot and no other monarch had ever come here. Mm. And and she, she started the walkabout. That's when it was born in Australia, hence oh, the name of the walkabout. One, one more was just the interview that Patrick Dodgson gave and I saw it on the ABC on Sunday night. Wasn't that beautiful? Oh, it was just, you know, after there'd been a bit of a to do, you know, regarding um, Indigenous round with the AFLW and whether or not they hold a minute, minute silence, to see his tears and describe how they had never as a group really felt respected or treated with respect. And she did. Yeah, and she received a group of Indigenous leaders at Buckingham Palace and listened and was empathetic and he was reduced to tears. That was a that was a very uh, poignant moment. I felt for for me also, and this and this whole Scottish trip too. Isn't it interesting? Because Scotland, of course, is trying to get back on the agenda. Or Nicola Sturgeon is um, 
the the matter of independence and breakaway from the rest of England. So that was, I thought, the timing of all of that and and the visual imagery of the Scottish Highlands and the Queen's Hearse and hundreds of people lining the little country roads and laneways was very, very interesting. So on to her greatest achievements. And, of course, there are... Uh, there are so many for this little podcast to cover in a short time, but um, I keep coming back to this whole idea of when she was uh, when she was told in the treetops in Africa that she was the next monarch. There was an there was a British Empire, and over the years that followed and the change that occurred in the fifties and sixties, she was very deft, I thought, and rather intuitive moving it from the empire and losing countries, many many states and countries saying, we don't want the Queen as our head of state, we prefer independence. But she managed to keep this special tie with so many of them, including Australia, and she called it the Commonwealth of Nations. And I thought that was a really clever step. It was the end of the British Empire. It was time to go, time to leave. But out of the ashes, she was able to create something that is still important to so many leaders. The, the the little I mean look her I suppose her greatest public failing in recent memory was um, the response to the death of Diana the Princess of Wales um, where they you know really misread the public mood and despite the fact that Diana had been in I urge everyone to read Tina Brown's The Palace Papers I, oh, mean, I started it on the even, weekend oh, it's a, I can't put it down it's a brilliant book it, it's shallow and flighty and bitchy no it's and not fascinating. it's actually not shallow. It is in some parts, uh, but, but it's, I oh mean, no, Corrie, I loved it. She, I reviewed it on this show. I know, show. but she does write from an extraordinary foundation of truth. She's interviewed a lot of people, and she's also been covering this since she was a young editor of Tatler in the early 80s. So it's, it's a she's great, over a subject. She's completely over it. Yeah, that doesn't mean that it deals with some pretty shallow topics, but it is brilliant, and I urge you to read it. I think that was probably her. And, and the other sort of failing, I guess, was the decision in the first place to um, – sort of allow this marriage to go ahead. Not that it was completely up to her, but the people around her and the people who allowed that and really threw this very, very young woman who was completely, and to misjudge her so badly. So that was probably, and I I think there was a lot of talk about um, the fact that she was a a cold mother, but I think that more dates back to the, the famous shot when she hasn't seen Prince Charles, this little boy for six months or something or five months. And it, it looked so, um, it looked so awful the way she greeted him, but clearly, you know, there was a, there was obviously the job that she did just precluded her to have so much of a normal life. I mean, I love those little symbolic stories about what she wore when she met Donald Trump wearing the Obama pin, mm. turning up to open parliament post-Brexit in, Euro- in the European Union colours. Um, you know, the, the Ukraine visit- war showing solidarity wearing the cornflower blue and yellow. Yeah, yep. the, the visit to Ireland and the green. I mean, you know, that was um, no one saying that the, the Ireland situation was handled well by the British. It was a you know, national disgrace, but it happened well. You know, it started well before her time and she went, she went there and she truly tried to make a difference. I think the thing that everybody most admires is her work ethic. What an amazing role model, not only for her family, but for all of us, um, she really followed the mantra. It was kind of set up from by Queen Queen Mary, I guess, her grandmother, who um, made a comment once to a family member saying, you are a member of the British royal family, you are never tired, 
and you love hospitals. <laughs> and um, and no one could ever deny, of course, that um, Diana, Princess of Wales, didn't do her fair share. But that issue was really one that spiralled out of control immediately because the media fell and the public fell in love with Diana. And all of a sudden, yep. Queen, Queen Elizabeth was the second best and Charles was the third best. And none of them knew how to deal with that. None, none of them knew how to do, deal with the age of celebrity. And they mishandled it. They mishandled Diana. And that, as you say, was a very difficult time. It's going to be so interesting to see what happens now under Charles and whether Australia goes back down the Republican path and what model they come up with, whether Charles, whether the the aura that the royal family has had because of the Queen's longevity and because of her work ethic and her attitude and her character, whether that continues and and whether, because, you know, we see already countries are forging ahead with their plans to move away from being under, well, I mean, remaining in the Commonwealth, not, not necessarily, but becoming republics. And I think also, um, if I just go back to the Palace Papers one more time, Charles is rather disorganised private uh, business life, work life comes out a lot, whereas Diana was far more organised with her office. The Queen, just incredibly organised. I mean, you, you know, buried her head in the sand, as the Queen Mother did when there were, often didn't, backed away from confrontation, got her staff to do it. But um, the other thing that comes out of that book is just the extraordinary um, happy marriage that she had with Prince Philip. That mm. It really was a love story. Look, there were obviously issues along the way, like any long marriage and like any two high-profile famous, you know, he, obviously all the stuff that he went through, having to change his whole life plan to be with her and his rather sad family background. But that comes out so much. And I think after his death, it, it would have been really tough to go on. I think it was very tough. How often does that happen, that the... The partner dies within a year of the first partner. Uh, I, over the weekend, I watched, um, I remember seeing it when I was little, and then I could never work out why we never, ever saw it again. And at the, the, at this, the, I've solved the, solved the problem. The documentary, the 1969 documentary of the royal family behind the scenes, and um, that was an initiation of Prince Philip, and the Queen went along with it. And, of course, we saw them picnicking in Balmoral. We saw the most awkward breakfast with... Uh, the, um, Anne and Charles and their mother and father. Oh, so awkward. Um, the Queen's very little voice, you know, she had a very tiny yep. high voice. Um, she lowered it as time went on and she had uh, um, elocution lessons to, to have more of a gravitas in her tone. But um, when that went to air, the royal family apparently was so mortified, they contact, they owned the copyright and they contacted the BBC and said, destroy all copies, that is to ne never to be seen again. And it popped up in YouTube on YouTube about three years ago, just segments of it, not the whole thing. After after the story was told That's in the right. fictional sense in the crown. <laughs> That's right. yep. Yep. So so I was watching bits and pieces of it and at the picnic, in the picnic scene, Prince Philip is very much the man of the house. The man of the barbecue the man in the tartan skirt. Yep. But but she defers to him in a way that, you know, do you think the sausages are cooked and he's Yeah, they're fine. <laughs> just like, and I just thought that's just such a, it's such a common, was it staged, was it not? But it's such a common kind of conversation that couples say, how often have you been standing inside ready with the salad and the potatoes and everything? And if the man is the cooking the barbecue, it's not always the man, but you're saying, hurry up. When are you going to hurry up? What's happening out there? Never mind. We'll be ready when it's ready. Where do you, where do you see Harry, Harry and Meghan going? Um, 
definitely back into the fold, I think, for Harry. Uh, Do it, you? Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. if. Do they, you? Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. If, well, you know me. I mean, I get this wrong every time, so don't call me a Harry and Megan expert. Uh, she's not coming out all that well in my current reading where oh, I'm at in the Palabella. Oh, no, it gets worse. It gets worse. She's oh, clearly loathed. She's loathed in Great Britain. She Yes, and she was. She, she's made so. She's told so many. She was truths. shunned the other day. We all saw a couple of images of people hugging her, but she was also shunned, which. And, and people turned their back, which we didn't see. So, uh, but I think Harry will have. Uh, he'll, he'll have. Um, he'll find himself back again in the heart of his father. How, but how, will he live in? Will he go back to America? I think he'll have to stay in America. But it wouldn't surprise me if he comes across more often. It wouldn't surprise me, and it wouldn't surprise me if Charles lets it be known that he wants to have a relationship with his grandchildren, and he, you know, they might have summers in Balmoral or something like that. Now, wouldn't that be jolly and fabulous? But I do think Harry has to now think, rethink. I'm the son of the king. And I have responsibilities, and I should not be writing tell-all memoirs. So, do they give the the book deal money back? Do they give the net? He was giving money it all back? to charity anyway. So I don't know whether he had an advance, but we understand that all proceeds of the of the memoir was to go to charity. Yeah, but he's I got don't the know money. The if he doesn't do the. They don't. No, but he hasn't been. He, but he hasn't been given. He hasn't been given an advance. Uh-huh. So, so he was to be paid. That's my understanding of it. So he was to be paid when the book was delivered. The book's been delivered. I don't know where the money is, but. He uh, it just it wouldn't surprise me if he just says, um, "I think we might just withdraw this." I'm not sure about that, Caro, but he has a lot to lose because, as we know, that King Charles III is now a very wealthy man. Prince William is worth a billion dollars thanks to the Duchy of Cornwall and smart investments that he's just inherited. How is Harry going to play this? He has to play the game in order to to receive some sort of income as the king's son. You would have thought. I guess so. He has to play it very, very cleverly, I would have thought. But, look, there's lots to talk about. And, of course, as we mentioned last week, Britain is coming into a a winter of complete discontent. In one week they had a new prime minister, a new monarch. The House of Commons, which was debating this all-important energy bill, of course, is now paused until October because of the Queen's death. There's the Scottish independence issue bubbling away. And the NHS apparently is is in absolute crisis mode. Accident and emergency systems falling apart, funding and recruitment falling apart. Sickness is on the rise with winter coming, and um, again, Parliament can't debate the NHS funding issue. So there's, <laughs> you wouldn't want to be in London right now, Caro. No, you probably. Wouldn't. But you would want to be in Sydney. Well, actually, my daughter Rose is heading to London coincidentally this weekend, so she can maybe <gasps> report back next week for us. Will she be there Monday? Uh, not sure. No, oh, that would be I think she has to work very on handy. Monday, she, but could, she could be our girl, girl on the spot. Well, for those I'll do who some work on that, for those who have missed the news about the um, about the royal funeral, it is on. At, it will be on television. It starts eight pm on Monday night. But I'm sure there'll be a whole lot of um, prelude to that. So just keep watching your local television service. Now, Caro, you're off to Sydney. Um, to see the pies and the swans battle it out. I think it'll be a ripper of a game. But I posed to you the question a couple of days ago, if you had the 48 hours in Sydney, which you do, what what would you suggest people do apart from going to the footy? Well, going to the footy is a big one and the SCG is a great place to watch football. So exciting. There's a preliminary final back there for the first time since um, Maya Clementine was born in 1996. Um, Corrie... 
If you go, there, there's so many beautiful walks in Sydney. Bondi to Bronte is a famous one. Um, I think the sculpture exhibition is not on at the moment, but um, I, I would highly recommend that one. Or go down to um, one of the beautiful beaches on the, um, you know, around Rose Bay, Double Bay, um, Parsley Bay is one, Nielsen Park is another, and just follow the path, follow the path back to Rose Bay. It's spectacular. But the walk I'm planning on doing is um, Clontarf to Manly. Oh. Um, it's a great walk. Over the other side. Yeah. I, where you I, usually stay. Yeah, it's about 10Ks and it, oh, they say three and a half to four hours. I mean, you knock it off in under three, I reckon. Um, and then you end up um, at that beautiful beach. Is it called Penny Royal or something like that beach in Manly? And there's a gorgeous little cafe there. Early morning walk, get there for late brunch, early lunch. That would be a big recommendation. Go to the centre of town, sit in Lady Macquarie's chair, wander around the Botanic Gardens and go to the New South Wales Art Gallery, which at the moment has got a Daniel Boyd exhibition, a beautiful exhibition, Treasure Island, I think it's called. And also the Museum of Contemporary Art too, I love. That is great. Down on Circular Quay. Love that. And in fact, go to Circular Quay and hop on up to Cafe Sydney and have a glass of champagne or a cocktail and just overlook the ferries coming in and out. There are so many. um, Go to the 18-footers for a drink down at Double Bay. Um, look, there's so many wonderful things to do, but a walk around one side or another of that incredible yeah. harbour. And what about that? What about um, the Opera House with the Queen's image on it the other night? Wasn't that just well, extraordinary? I, and I was actually quite teary with the MCG shots. Yep, there the was one beautiful. minute silence. I just thought that beautiful. was 77,000 people, as quiet as mice, and an amazing moment and I didn't see any coverage on my CNNs or my BBC Worlds or anything. I saw and, no coverage of that. And 90,000 the next night, oh. although they didn't they didn't have God Save the Queen the next night, but one last time they played it and walking home on Friday night past Flinders Street Station, which was lit in purple. Oh, it was, it was incredibly, colour. incredibly moving, Corrie. It really was. So, um, and I, I thought the um, tributes at Flemington too and all the jockeys wearing black armbands and the silence there and, and the way they handled all of that. My late godmother, Sally Turnside, had, had her first race named after her, the Sally Turnside Stakes, actually, as well, which was just a nice little sideline. But that was enormous what they did at Flemington. And obviously, people, anyone who has owned a horse or had a horse trained mutually in partnership with the Queen, there are some fabulous stories because that was clearly her first love. Her first love after Philip and after the Corgis. Uh, Caro, we, I don't know whether it's appropriate to have a drink and see her off, but we're going to chat to Miles now about appropriate drinks if we're having gatherings on um, the night of the Queen's funeral. So let's wheel him in on the trolley. Jane's pushing at a mighty speed. And let's start the cocktail cabinet. And Miles Thompson is here with us from Prince Wine Store. Good day, Miles. Hello. Good to see you. Uh, we have a final three winners of the Introduction to Wine Appreciation course that you very kindly offered our podcasters at Prince Wine Store. Thank you to everybody who entered the competition. Miles has been inundated, haven't you, with oh, expressions of interest. 
Um, and you can, of course, uh, contact us or we'll contact you um, regarding your voucher to Marika McMahon and Julie Barber and Andrew Healy. Thank you so much for your lovely stories about wine and you. You are our three winner- winners and Miles and the team look forward to seeing you at the Wine Appreciation Course at Prince Wine Store. We're going to talk Queen cocktails, what to drink if you're um, so sad on Monday night during the funeral. Yeah, correct. You have to just get blotto. But I just wanted to tell you and Caro about the Queen's favourite cocktail. There's been a lot of discussion about Dubonnet in mm. the last month because it was her favourite drink. Apparently there has been a massive rush on Dubonnet in the UK. Dubonnet, right. for those who don't know it, my parents used to drink it in the 60s. It's not dissimilar to a Campari, similar colour. But the Queen's favourite cocktail, Miles and Caro, was Dubonnet gin and a slice of lemon with lots of ice. Sounds I'm, pretty good. I had read that, yeah. Yeah, and I think the Queen Mother liked it too. That's I think right. she liked it a lot. Yeah. <laughs> she didn't, she, Not just in Dubonnet. Yeah, but gin and du- Dubonnet too. were um, two of her favourites. Do we sell Dubonnet at Prince Wine Store? I think we've had it before. Um, it's not something that we generally sort of stock, but it might be something we have to now stock. I think <laughs> so you can so. get some, Miles. You might not be able well, to. that's right. It's probably probably already too late to order some. So, so Carol, I yeah. don't know whether you realise, but when Queen Victoria, when Albert Prince Albert died, Queen Victoria commanded that no champagne be drunk. Yeah. And people who love champagne were a bit miffed by this, so they actually poured a little bit of stout, which is a dark colour, into their champagne. So it looked like a, f- a frothy drink, and it became known as the Black Velvet. So I'm sure there's no commandment from the Queen that we can't drink on Monday night. So what will we be drinking? Well, I thought, talking of stout, we, we have this awesome one, Samuel, Samuel Smith's Chocolate Stout. Fantastic. Chocolate and, Stout. Yeah, it's so good. It's, one, it's, not like, it's not necessarily sweet and chocolatey. It's just got this like kind of bitter chocolate sort of edge to it. But it's beautiful. And Samuel Smith's, they're a really old uh, brewery from the UK. Um, and they have a, uh, the, the Samuel Smith stuff is probably people who drink it, they're usually lower alcohol. They're like more traditional sort of ales and things that, that sort of, I guess, used to be sort of brewed. We're very used to here, and I think in Australia, things like IPAs and these pale ales, and they're often higher alcohol, quite sort of high ABV. A lot of the Samuel Smith beers are much more sort of lower kind of mellow sort of styles. But yeah, this chocolate stout is unbelievably good. It sounds so if delicious. You're gonna, if you're gonna, yeah, I mean, chocolate and dark stout kind of roasted maltiness and that bitter chocolate cocoa thing. It's really good. And the weather is still permitting, I think, for a stouty. Yeah, well, <laughs> nice stouty well, drink. Well, um, you know, I remember um, at the Royal Women's Hospital, they used to bring around a glass of stout years for ago breastfeeding. to all the breastfeeding mothers because yeah. it was meant to be good for breastfeeding, bring the milk on or something like that. Yeah, right. Um. Stout is obviously something you don't see ordered very often now at hotels. No, it's, it's you know, I, mean, I think Guinness, I think they list Guinness as the sort of stout of choice for the, the royal family. I also saw tequila as well. I saw, a, I read a little list today. It was quite interesting. My um, mother, yes. my mother makes a mean royal wedding punch. Remember, Corrie, well, you've you had go. it, which is champagne, a lot of champagne yeah. um, or sparkling wine, sparkling co- wine. cold tea. Oh. Um, cold tea is, is the um, other ingredient and pineapple juice and mint okay. and a lot of soda water. It's a beautiful drink, absolutely right. beautiful Sounds drink. Like, I love that idea of the tea. The so does the, so, does the yeah. chocolate stout, does it work a bit like Guinness, which turns your stools black? 
I don't oh, know. Corey. I couldn't, I couldn't speak to... Uh, you know that, don't you? Personal opinion. A number of, of people of, who the next morning have thought that they've had some terrible <laughs> disease and freaked out. I don't think I've ever actually drunk stout. Now, can we move on to after that? Looking back at Jane. <laughs> Shaking her head. What's going on? Is there um, any other um, drinks you can recommend for Monday night? Yeah, so I thought, t- talked about Dubonnet. Um, so I thought I'd do, I, th- I thought with both, I'd do something a little sort of left of field, just something a little different rather than just sort of go down, down the line with what, with what they have there. And I picked, um, it's called Mary Melrose Pinot de Chiron. So it's a traditional sort of style of, I don't know, I almost know what you de- describe. It's kind of like a vermouth without the herbs and Dubonnet does have some herbs and bittering agents and things. And it's a, a un, unfermented red wine. So you still have all that sweetness. The sugars haven't been fermented out. So unfermented red wine mixed with cognac. Oh. So it makes this lovely sort of fresh, sweet, uh, you know, it's got that cognac flavor through it, that lovely sweet red wine. I think they use Merlot and Cabernet wow. for this one, Mary Melrose, and they're organic too. So really, so they're a cognac producer but they also make these Pinot de Chirons. So there's some really great Pinot de Chirons around. Lille is sort of a Pinot de Chirons style. Okay. Um, Where you is You also Mary have Mel- Lille Rouge too if you're looking at Dubonnet alternative. Which is a beautiful drink. Yeah. And it, and it's even though it's similar. French, you see it a lot in English on English bars. Co- correct. And vermouth and things like that. You see a lot of, you know, I guess traditionally in, in England. You know, and and where is and Mary like Melrose? So they're based in Cognac. So they're in Cognac, yeah. And wow. this is be- – so they do a white and a red. We have both at work. Um but I thought the red's perfect. It, it it has all those sort of elements without the the sort of citrus and bitter herb elements that you might get in Dubonnet. But it has that red wine base, which is what Dubonnet is, and it's fortified. And this one's fortified with cognac. Pinot de Chiron. Pinot de Chiron. I've yeah. never had so it's it. Called, Have you ever had a Caro? This is called Mary Melrose Pinot. No. Pinot Rouge. P-I-N-N-E-A-U. Pinot de Chiron. Beautiful. So Mary Pinot Melrose. Rouge. And, and Mary Melrose is the... Is the, is the um, Brand, yeah. Quanta Coste. So sixty dollars for that. And, and what about Samuel Smith? Samuel Smith, I think, is sixteen for oh. the bottle, and they're five hundred mil. They're great recommendations. Yeah, Miles. the Samuel Smith beers are really. If people, are, you know, want to explore that range a bit more, everything's great. They have a traditional ale, a stout. They have a porter. They have a bunch of different things. They're very good beers. And sounds great, we Caro. Like we like them a lot. Caro, what will you be drinking on the royal funeral night? Oh, I, well, probably. Oh, you'll, you'll have television. <laughs> no, I don't. No, we're not doing footy classified on Monday night, obviously, because we weren't doing it for the Brownlow and now we're not doing it because of the funeral. So I'll be watching the funeral. Um, I, I sort of don't mind the idea of um, gin and Dubonnet, to be honest. Mm, sure. I think it doesn't it? I think that sounds would, fantastic. Yeah. Although Pinot du, Pinot du Chiron does sound, it's a, got a Dubonnet sort of vibe. Yeah, look, and, and, yeah, definitely. It's definitely good. It really, you know, in a lot of ways, the only things it's missing is those kind of herbs and citrus sort of things that you might get with, with Dubonnet. Um, maybe not. And it, it's a bit lighter too. So as an aperitif sort of thing, like even like all through summer, the red or the white. I'm on, loving on, this as a on summer ice drink. And a, yeah. If you like Lille, we've talked about Lille before. If you like Lille in those sort of styles, you're probably going to like this a lot. So Miles, the white and the red are both really delicious. We should remind everyone, Corrie, that we are having an event at Prince Wine Store on Wednesday, yes. the 26th of October. Can't wait. Do you get to meet Miles? You do. You can have I your photo taken. You can have your photo taken with Miles. I hope Gab's there too. She, I'll ask she always, to be she there. always looks after me whenever I have yeah. to order up a cart. I'll that say time, that she's been requested. 
to attend. You you have to attend two miles. The time <laughs> and date again, Corrie? The time is 5.30. No, what time is it, Janie? I'm looking at her. Five, I can't find it on my five list. Five till seven, I reckon. Yeah, yeah. I think it is. Think and we're, and we'll just, yeah. it, we're just going hours. to be doing uh, drinks. We might have a little bit of cheese or something. We're not yep. sure. Uh, you'll get to meet Miles and the team at Prince Wine Store, and they will, of course, take us through a number of different tastings. Yeah. And potties And potties will be able to buy on the night, won't they? And yeah, have absolutely. A, and have a discount. We'll, we'll sort out a little discount. And, and if the Samuel Smith's Chocolate Stout or the Mary Melrose Pinot de Chiron mm. interested you today, you can jump onto the princewinestore.com.au website. And what do we do when we get there? So uh, put in the code MEWS on the cart and you get 10% off. Fantastic. It's Too that easy, easy everybody. Yeah. Love it. Thanks, Miles. Thank you. Uh, Caro, on to BSF, and thank you, Red Energy, for sponsoring this part of our program. And we'll start with books. And as we said earlier, I'm going to discuss five royal books that people must read. It will not surprise you, Caroline, that I cannot contain myself to five. <laughs> Corrie, I, I've been disciplined. You can have a couple of have a couple of honourable mentions and get to it. Okay. Well, I well I well I, this, look. It's hard for me because it's fiction and non-fiction. So here is the non-fiction that I would suggest. There is a most excellent biography of the Queen that uh, appeared uh, a few months ago by Matthew Dennison, who is one of my favourite British historians. He is uh, a bit younger than you and I. He's a younger historian, and he's taken a look at. Uh, the Queen and Her Reign, and it's just simply called The Queen. I would recommend that. One of the most interesting books I've ever read on this current royal family is Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, the official biography by William Shawcross. And the very special thing here, that particular word, official, what actually happened was that members of the royal family, including the Queen, provided stories and anecdotes and fact-checked with William Shawcross. So it's a huge bumper of a book. Um, I read it one summer holiday in Byron Bay and um, I highly recommend that because there's just such a lot of interesting backstory too into the lineage but also the abdication crisis and onward, onward. What about what about the cousins who were buried in the mental yes. health institution? Does that come up in the book? It does come up in the book. And her, dare I say, manic overspending. <laughs> that, that it doesn't. That real, I mean, that comes out in the palace papers. But the cheeky, the cheekiness she of... She just built up an overdraft to millions of pounds. The cheekiness of Queen Mother and um, and her her sense of self and her sense of entitlement um, do kind of come through in that book. Um, <laughs> Prince Philip Revealed by Ingrid Seward. Ingrid is what you would call a royal watcher of the modern sense, but it was actually a particularly interesting book that came out maybe about seven or eight years ago. Uh, really interesting. Prince Philip, of course, as we know, had a very traumatic um, childhood and um, essentially didn't see his mother or father who were divorced, did not see them after the age of 10 or 11. Uh, apart from random um, moments, and um, and it's a most most interesting story. Diana by Andrew Morton. Of course, I remember in 1992 when that arrived on my desk at the Sunday Age, and we had to review it. We had 24 hours to do a story on it, and a book that I've mentioned in this podcast, which I think is essential reading, apart from your Palace Papers. This is essential to understanding King Charles III. It's called Rebel Prince by Tom Bower. It was published in 2018 and it gives you – it's not an all, all entirely complimentary look at Charles, but it talks about in particular his, uh, his extraordinary um, determination to get Camilla 
over the line in, in the eyes of the English British public. So, um, she, you know, she went from Viper and the other woman to to now, of course, Queen Camilla. So those are those are the fi- non-fiction, and then just a couple of uh, fiction, if you'll allow me. The Uncommon Reader by Alan Bennett, which is one of my favourite all-time books, and the other one is Mrs. Queen Takes the Train by William Kuhn, K-U-H-N. Uh, of course, they're fiction. It's been the story of the Queen feeling melancholy at the age of 80 and she decides that she wants one last moment with Britannia, which has been turned into a floating museum in Scotland, and unbeknownst to the palace, she sneaks out the back door, jumps on a train and takes herself to Scotland. And no one knows where she is, including MI5. Now, what about screen? Great recommendations. Um, yeah, I can, the, the Uncommon Reader is a very, beautiful. very funny book. A and, great book. And it's so beautifully written. About the Queen discovering a local library. A lending yeah, a lending library, library in her backyard. <laughs> and she discovers reading novels. Um, well, I, look, I've, I've kept it to five, and obviously I do apologise for the brilliant films like The Madness of King George and a lot of the ones about the men, and I've also restricted it to movies because we know how brilliant The Crown was and the Queen Victoria That's series. I can't, I can't believe you haven't put The King's Speech in your top five. I'm only doing women monarchs. Oh, yes, you did female, say that. Female, queens and princesses. That. Yes, yes. And I'm also um, making, again, you know, Elizabeth R. with Glenda Jackson all those years ago. What a brilliant series that was. But... Um, uh, number five, The Young Victoria. I just love that film. I know it's a bit soap operatic, written by Julian Fellows and starring Emily Blunt. It's probably far too beautiful for Queen Victoria, but I really, really enjoyed that film. Number four, Elizabeth. Um, the Are you doing Brownlow Middle Votes or the other way around? I'm going from the worst, five is worst to best. Okay. N- number four, the Kate Blanchett Elizabeth. Um, the the made, first one. The first one. They were both fantastic, but the first one was better. Um, what a cast. Jo- um, Gilgood in one of his last roles, Jeffrey Rush, Joseph Fiennes, Richard Attenborough, and the politics and the oh, nastiness. Jeffrey Rush is Wolseley. Oh, like, no, not Wolseley. Um, the toxic scheme. Yes. Oh, it was ju- amazing. And the torture. Just extraordinary. So I really recommend Elizabeth. And then at number three, look, I'm sorry, but Roman Holiday. I just loved it. <laughs> Me too. I thought about that this morning. I thought, I'm going to say that if Carol doesn't say it. I love it. But doesn't it give you a sense of the conf- the confines of rural life? Well, it's, it's all our favourite things. It's about journalism. It's got Gregory Peck. It's set in Rome. And it's got the young Audrey Hepburn playing, people say, sort of Princess Margaret. Ish. But anyway, I absolutely loved that film. Number two, The Favourite, which I really loved. I'm um, starring Olivia Coleman as Queen Anne. And it, it's all about, was it Sarah Churchill, who was a great friend, yes. played by, um, was it Emma Stone? Yes. And, and, um, and Rachel Weisz. Right, Rachel one, Weisz. One of the great three-part, all-girl sort of great casts. Just a brilliant film. I went with my brother. He loathed it. I loved it. There's a lot of stuff made up, but it was all part of the vibe. It was just brilliant. And number one, The Queen with Helen Mirren, because it was such a big thing at the time. And that's basically the film about how the Queen dealing with the death of Princess Diana. Um, A lot of it people scoffed at, like um, when that beautiful wild deer turns up and she just stares at it and the deer's meant to symbolise Diana and People in her staff said she would have shot it. You know, how ridiculous. But, <laughs> but I thought but, Helen Mirren was brilliant as a queen and Michael Sheen as the Prime Minister of the time, Tony Blair. It was he, He's a very good on. actor. Yep. 
Caro, I'm with you with the Queen and uh, I was listening to something over the weekend. Um, the commentator said that the royal family really loved the Queen. They enjoyed it. And in fact, they felt that the tide turned in public in the public perception of the Queen after that movie, that there was a warmth and an understanding of her of her role. And I think she, she won the Oscar, she Helen did. Mirren. She won, she won Best, Best Actor. I, I no, Best Actress. I haven't seen Mary, Queen of Scots with the Sa- Sasha, how do I pronounce her name? Ronan. Saoirse. Saoirse Ronan. And of course, the original Mary, Queen of Scots with Vanessa Redgrave. And, um, and, and again, Glenda Jackson. That's right. Playing wasn't Queen Elizabeth. that a wonderful, gosh, you've reminded me of Apologies that. Apologies to that one as well. See, I threw in a couple too, just That's to pay, right, you're just to pay to. you back, Corrie. But, but do you know what um, you know what I loved and adored, Cara, which really set me on my history bent when I was a little kid watching Keith Michelle in Henry VIII, the Six Wives, six of, Henry wives VIII. of Henry VIII. All those Brilliant. wonderful actresses that were in that: Dorothy Tutton and Annette um, Crosby, and it just it was such a wonderful cast. It was, and that that was followed soon after by Elizabeth R. That we were all glued to with mm. Glenda Jackson, who yeah. I saw in a movie not long ago. There's a very good uh, number of films that people can now access thanks to Caro's uh, recommendations there. And on to I'll food. Give them to, I'll give them to Miss Jane to put on our show notes. Now we decided we decided we couldn't revisit the coronation chicken recipe that we did a few years ago when Megan and Harry were married because. We've already done it on the podcast. So, Caro, I don't know whether your recipe has a royal bent or not, but what are we eating? It's got a spring bent, Corrie, because it does finally feel like spring today. I'm not not holding my breath that it will last. But um, this is um, with, well, I'm saying thank you to my daughter Clementine who has given me this recipe and made it and I can absolutely tell you it is delicious. Can somebody give that child a podcast and then we can have new recipes on our podcast? Well, uh, she's (laughs) she's got an Instagram page for her food called Clemmy Donahue. Yes, follow it everyone, follow it. This will be on the Instagram Clemmy Donahue but it's, she she calls it her welcome spring salad and she's perfected it um, after many days of trying different things. The grain involved is farro, one cup, um, chicken stock or water, broad beans peeled, cucumber, parsley and mint, sugar peas or snow peas or a bit of both, finely sliced, bunch of watercress or something similar, 100 grams of feta, almonds and sumac. It is Yum. beautiful. And the dressing is, I'll, I'll just give you the, the rations of the dressing, ratios I should say, a quarter of a cup of olive oil, two pieces of preserved lemon finely chopped, half a lemon juiced, rice vinegar to taste, black pepper and sea salt. It is absolutely beautiful and the recipe and the finished result are on our show notes. And that would be very pretty too. It is. It is, Corrie. Um, You'll have a look at the picture. It's really nice. I will love that. Thank you, Caro. That was BSF for Red Energy. And if you are moving house... Thankfully, I've stopped doing that these days. You can call local energy retailer Red Energy. Remember their number, 131 806, and they will get you started. Caro Grumpy, your turn. Airlines, mean bastard airlines, who the minute a major event is announced, like an AFL preliminary final, they put up their prices. The way they have gouged the prices for the Sydney Collingwood game, and I watched it. I knew it was going to happen. I actually booked my flight well before Collingwood won the other night, and I'm leaving, you know, a few days before the game. But to think that the chairman of the AFL, Richard Goida, is also the chairman of Qantas, 
and he doesn't, I mean, I understand, I understand why this happens, but you could not, if you lived over in Perth last week, the price you had to pay to get to Melbourne to watch Fremantle play in their semi-final after that fabulous win over the Bulldogs, Corrie, it was well over $1,000 return, well over. And, I, and I'm talking, if you went at the really last minute, closer to $2,000. So so if, let's say we're not you, because you're, as you said, you're going up a few days earlier. But if you are Joe Blow and you want to go up Friday night or Saturday morning, what's the ticket costing you to Sydney? I think they've put on extra planes, but you're looking at a grand oh, return. Lordy. I mean, I just don't know how they sleep at night, seriously. I'm actually, Virgin have done it to a degree, although not as bad, and I'm flying Virgin in protest. Yeah, I'm sure Virgin is shattered. <laughs> Qantas is shattered to have lost my custom. But, you know, I, but do you know, just to interrupt you there, sorry, but I flew, deliberately flew Virgin to Byron Bay or to Coolangatta the other week, and I know a number of people who are now flying Virgin deliberately. Because they've just they're jack with Qantas. Well, we can't trust Jetstar. You know, we're we're going to a friend's milestone birthday. You and I, um, in a little while, up to North Queensland. The Jetstar cancellations. What they do, they just bump people off the flight and make them go on another flight in, in completely unreasonable times. Um, won't allow them to go on other available flights that day. And worse, what they've done to a few people I know who are going to Sydney is that you might have got a cheap flight three months ago. You might be going up to Sydney. They'll ring you and cancel that flight and make you go on a crappy flight because they can sell your ticket that you paid nothing for a few months ago because no one knew that Sydney would be hosting a preliminary final. And they've jacked up the price by 500% or 300%. I mean, uh, that's wicked. We, we understand We understand that the airlines have done it tough over the pandemic, but... This is not the way to bring back customers. The, the lack of trust, the lack of security now when you travel, thanks to unreliable airlines, it's just awful. Sorry, I've really gone on. Chloe. No, no, not at all. Um, I I, um, I uh, am listening with huge interest because, as you know, I'm just petrified of flying for these very reasons. Um, Caro, I just wanted to remember my grumpy last week. Yet again, it was another traffic issue, traffic in me, but I was complaining about Swan Street, Richmond, and where do you go? Mandy, um, I received a correspondence from Mandy saying, um, I need, um, where's she going? Um, I need to meet you at the Avenue Bookshop, Richmond. Hop into my car and we are going to master the Swan Street intersection once and for all, <laughs> Corrie. Mandy, I'm there. You can teach me. Caro. Um, what an invitation. I, I like the idea of going to the Avenue Bookstore first. Um, so six quick questions for Red Energy. And I will kick this off by asking you, what's the most lavish event you've attended in September or you are attending? I don't know whether that's no, past what or No, what I've attended, well, clearly the AFL final series at the MCG. Mm. I don't know whether it's because Gillan McLaughlin is, you know, on the farewell tour and having a very lavish one. I haven't been to the grand final yet. Luckily, I've already been asked and RSVP'd. So whatever I say now is not going to see my invitation revoked. The Brownlow, as we know, has been moved from Sunday to Monday due to the funeral of Queen Elizabeth II. And um, amazing that they were able to completely move the whole thing as big as it is to crown on the night before. And um, But the final series, Corrie, I have been to to an elimination, a qualifying and a semi-final at the MCG. I've missed one. The entertainment in the AFL function on those nights has been Mark Seymour, Delta Goodrum, Pete Murray, 
they must have all been earning meatloaf. No, 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 meatloaf. Massive five figure sums. Extraordinary, Gosh. extraordinary. The food, the first night there was a seafood bar before the three, two or three course meal, which involved the most beautiful Coffin Bay oysters, fresh prawns, Is this a good look? There were cocktails being swung around. One night it was gin, one night it was vodka with rosemary and junipers. And Is everybody, are all the stakeholders happy with this vast Moe all night. Being- on the other night, it was served. They were served in these big goblets. Roaming no, Brian I'm per- sorry. entertained one night. I don't agree with this. The clubs should be receiving some of this dosh well, for the, two well, years of hardship. Well, the AFL are looking after their sponsors. One thing I will say: the AFL and the MCC have been at war in all the time I've been covering footy. And even though they were two such great partners, never got on and always bitched about each other. Are they Mc- having moe and oysters together? Well, Gillan McLaughlin have, has ended that schism. And so is Stuart Fox, the um, CEO of the MCC. Mike Fitzpatrick is gone. He was best friends with Stephen Goff, who ran the MCC, but they still couldn't get on. It's quite wonderful to see our two great institutions, probably partly thanks to the state government deal, getting on so well. Anyway, it's been very lavish, Corrie. I've been wined and dined. Goodness me. Um, What statistics shocked you this week? A new report came out, Caro, from the Chief Executive Women's Association. They did a, it's a a women in leadership group and they did this new report or issued this new report, which tells us that 47 out of the 300 ASX companies, 47 of them have absolutely no women in their leadership team. Now, if that um, doesn't seem much to you, I think we all have to think about um, positive discrimination and, and policies that Many Agreed. companies have tried so hard to get over the line. Last year it was 44, so we're actually getting worse. And it's just, it's such an interesting, it's an, it's an interesting paper and I won't go into it. People can look it up um, through the Chief Executive Women's Network. But the question I ask is why are so many companies stalling or going backwards in their mission to bring women into leadership positions? Maybe the men just don't believe in the mission but something terrible is happening. There are now just 14 female CEOs amongst Australia's top 200 companies. 14. Oh, you don't seem shocked. Well, I, I'm, it's, it's dreadful and I'm it's appalled. It's terrible. 28% but I, of senior roles are women. Oh, I'm not shocked, Corrie. I'm not shocked because I, I see it every day, don't you? Well, I just, I, where's the change? And so based on the figures... It's saying that, it, that, I mean, Sam Mostyn, who you know very well from AFL days, she's the chair, the president of this organisation. She said it's staggering this uh, this gender equality is still 100 years away um, from being based on the current trends. We're moving at a glacial pace, which means that your Sunday and my Harriet, by the time they have daughters, they may, we may just have parity. We may just have a, a balance. But how long is that? We won't be here. We're doing our bit, Corrie. We're doing our bit. Caro, will electric scooters take off? They oh, will. I thought they had. They will. Well, there's only in, they're only in three, I was going to say boroughs, but <laughs> we don't live in, um, in New York, do we? They're, they're in three, Suburbs. three different <laughs> municipalities, including around the CBD and the MCG. They're everywhere. I've seen them everywhere, lady. I think they're the most fantastic idea. And yes, they will take off. Just put your helmet on, which they come with mm, them. And drive safely. Have your credit card, drive safely. I think it's the most fantastic idea. Corrie, what was the highlight of last weekend's Melbourne Writers Festival, which I know you attended? Coco and I had a special afternoon tea with Sarah Winman, who wrote Still Life. I did <laughs> you hear knew I was that. Well, Anna from the op shop said, she said, could I sit with you at Sarah Winman? And you said, no, I'm having drinks with her tonight on Saturday <laughs> night. 
<laughs> it was such a highlight. Yes, yes, Potty, she is as lovely as her books. It's true. Um, the author of Still Life, when's her new one coming out? Did oh, you? Oh, no, she's not. No, she's not working on anything at the moment that's going to pop out, but it'll oh. be here soon. Um, what's your latest travel GLT? Well, you didn't want me to reveal this because we should, we're trying to keep it to ourselves. But I can't believe you're about to say this. Well, there's all these new premium Shh. economy Everybody turn off the radio right coming now. Coming out, having bagged the airlines, don't worry, just ignore Qantas because their international fares are a disaster. But Singapore Airlines, Emirates are now doing premium economy fares to Dubai, which means, you know, you can travel premium economy all the way to Dubai if you want to go to Europe next year and then just do the shorter leg um, economy, a great saving. The prices are book ahead, book in advance. The prices are going to be horrendous if you leave it too late. But premium economy, Corrie, it's the way to go. Now, what is this week's amazing fact? Uh, what's in a name is my question to you. And thinking about Queen Elizabeth Alexandra Mary, um, from where did she receive her name? Well, Alexandra was her great-grandmother, wife of Edward VII, and Mary was her grandmother, uh, Elizabeth after her mother. And in 1952, because monarchs can take any name they like, I have to preface by saying that. And in 1952, she was asked what name would she like to choose. She famously replied, my own, of course. (laughs) Sorry, very bad. Um, she, uh, She named her daughter Princess Anne Elizabeth Alice Louise, Alice and Louise being very well known names within, oh, certainly Queen Victoria's family. And the Queen's three granddaughters have Elizabeth in their name, and five of her seven great-granddaughters have Elizabeth in the name, including Lilibet, Diana Mountbatten, Mm. Windsor. Mm. I know you disapprove of that. (laughs) Charles uh, could have had Charles Philip Arthur George, so he could have been King Philip or King Arthur, which would be amusing. Um, or King George the Seventh, but he's what about Matthew Guy referring to famous British monarchs over? I know, and he said King Arthur. Are you? <laughs> I heard that the other day. <laughs> oh, I mean, uh, he was it was a legendary king, but sadly only legendary. Ah, <laughs> oh, yes, that's the key word. Anyway, um, so he chose Charles, and just while we're on a name, Caro, the corgis. So as we know, the Queen had more than thirty corgis during her lifetime. When she was 10 years old, she she received her first corgi called Dookie. Um, and she had Sugar for many years, who was the very fondly loved pet of young Charles and young Anne. She's had Whiskey and Sherry. She had Heather, who had a number of corgi puppies, including Tiny, Bushy, Foxy and Brush. Um, <laughs> she's also had corgis with regular names like Monty and Emma and Willow and Lynette. Lynette. <laughs> <laughs> Lynette. And, well, my Willow will be pleased to hear she's in there. and Anna oh, will be pleased Holly. to know there's a Monty. And, and Bisto and Spick and Span. Oh, cute. I like Isn't that. Isn't that nice? That's I really like cute. Spick and Span. And Candy. And Candy and Muick, the, the two corgis who were with Her Majesty when she died, they, as I said earlier, they have gone to live with Prince Andrew. Good luck with that, corgis. And his estranged wife, um, Sarah. What about all those beautiful black Labradors that um, photographs we've seen her with too? She had a few of those over the years. A number. Honestly, the pets, I could have been here for five hours talking about the pet names. But there you go. So just a last little nod to the Queen and her beloved corgis. That's a a lovely, amazing fact, Corrie. And given that um, my own black Labrador is called, coincidentally, Queenie, um, in fact, um, last week there was a great sadness from the international members of the family living overseas when um, Rose put it. Rose and Oscar were having a glass of Dubonnet, and R.I.P. Queenie. Ned read it and went, "No, no, 
She's only 18 oh months. Oh, my God. That's a bit of a shock. I know. Um, I was and at the park the other day with Panda and somebody said, what's your dog's name? Amanda. Oh, wait. <laughs> and I started laughing, which I thought was probably quite rude to Amanda's, but I've never heard of a dog called Amanda. Quite cute. <laughs> quite cute. End of a sad but happy and memorable podcast. Uh, we remember Queen Elizabeth with such fondness as uh, we've discussed her over so many years with your mother, Julia, um, with Anna from the Op Shop. She just continued to provide good fodder for us and we were huge admirers of her and her work ethic. And may she rest in peace, Caro. Um, I don't know what you're up to next Monday night, but we're going to be having a full-on family sit by the fire. If anybody talks, they'll get shot. And um, the, I'm sure lots of Australians will be watching the funeral as well. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And thank you, of course, to Red Energy, 100% Australian Electricity and Gas and Prince Wine Store. And thanks, Miles, for coming in. Don't forget, Caro, we must save the date, everybody. Save the date for our event at Prince Wine Store. We're going to be, Caro and I are going to be popping down there. Miles and the team are going to be giving um, all of us a lesson in a few wines and a bit of wine tasting it's October the 26th from 5pm for an hour or two. So it'll just be like drinks at the bar, except it's wine. Don't good. shoot the messenger, Corey. This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, awarded CanStar's Most Trusted Energy Providers nationally 2021 and 22. That's Red Energy. And Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world. Visit princewinestore.com.au.